The American Declaration of Independence famously says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and I assume it means women as well, that all people are created equal. Um, the idea that all people are equal in their value, regardless of their ethnicity, their gender, their income, their disability status, their height, their birth, their age, the idea of universal human equality is incredibly valuable. Uh, there's hardly any principle or idea more valuable than the idea of universal human equality. Now, the American Constitution claims that this idea is self-evident. And that's interesting because it isn't very self-evident. Uh, there's nothing more evident than the differences between us. Um, our differences are the obvious thing. Our abstract philosophical equality is the thing that needs explaining, it needs justifying. Uh, the overwhelming majority of people throughout human history haven't actually thought that all people were universally equal. Uh, racism, sexism, and elitism are absolutely common thought categories in human history. Read any book of history from any age and you'll see that. So where did this beautiful idea of universal equality that underpins what we call human rights, where did it actually come from? It's weird that it's this idea that's now absolutely everywhere and yet if you read history just a little bit back, it's absolutely nowhere. Uh, the Nazi party thought they knew where it came from. Uh, they looked at ancient Greek or Roman thought. Uh, children didn't have human rights. You could kill children if you wanted to. Uh, there was a rubbish heap uh, beside the Tiber River for that. Uh, slaves could be killed by a master for any reason. So where did this idea of radical equality come from? One, one Nazi party document attempted to explain that, and it said this. It is the Jew, Paul, who must be considered as the father of all this equality, as he, in a very significant way, established the principles of the destruction of a worldview based on blood. Uh, the Nazis thought that for 2,000 years you had the ideas of the Apostle Paul battling against the natural idea of a worldview based on blood. They would point out that it's very hard to find a civilization on earth that grew to any size without slavery being a core part of it. Come, come and tell me if you know of an exception, I'd be very interested. Uh, in Italian, the word ciao, have I said that properly? Ciao, which apparently means... Yeah, 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 yeah. Hello slash goodbye. That, that's what it, it currently means, but apparently, literally, it means I am your slave. Uh, slavery in European history is as common as the word hello. Uh, in modern China, Deng Xiaoping rejected the concept of universal human rights as a Western Christian idea. Uh, the National Campaign on Indian Human Rights notes that historically, 
Almost every rural village had a section for the Dalit, the untouchables, the fifth caste or level of person. Uh, the Khmer Rouge tried to categorize the race of every Cambodian in the 1970s. Uh, the same could be said of Croatians or Serbians in the Bosnian Wars of the 1990s uh, or the Rwandan genocide of 1994. We could spend the next hour together and it would be awful, wouldn't it? We could spend the next hour listing racial conflicts and divisions and segregations, including many in our own society and in our own history. Uh, lest we forget the white Australia policy uh, or the stolen generation, something that a simple apology could never atone for. Laws prohibiting mixed race marriages were only ruled unconstitutional in America in 1967. The Nazi party was right, however, to realize that the Apostle Paul threatens the idea of a worldview based on blood. Because it was the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, 2,000 years ago, who wrote this. Galatians 3 verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no, no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this passage was in the mind of Christians in the 4th century who fought to end the discarding of unwanted babies and children on the trash heaps. This passage was in the mind of William Wilberforce and the reformers who ended the trading of African slaves by the British Empire. Uh, Catherine Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, and an early feminist used this passage as a core motivation to fight against poverty and sexual discrimination. And Martin Luther King Jr. quoted this passage as evidence that the philosophy of Christianity is strongly opposed to the philosophy of racial segregation. This passage has been part of an ongoing counterattack against the idea of a worldview based on blood, gender, IQ, or any other distinction that we might make. Paul's worldview has never completely won the day, but this passage has been there throughout human history at many of the very best and brightest moments. But having said all of that, it's easy with such an incredibly famous verse to take it out of its context. It's easy to lose the train of Paul's argument because we like his conclusion so much. And I do like that conclusion very much, and I hope you do too. Galatians 3.28 is a conclusion drawing together a lot of very important thoughts. And we're going to go through this chapter twice together because there's so much in it. Ultimately, the text rises to and establishes the idea of universal human equality before God. However, the initial question that drives Galatians 3 is the question, who are the true children of Abraham? Universal human rights sounds modern and relevant, but who are the true children of Abraham? Who cares about that, right? Well, Christians, Jews and Muslims care about that, so that's 2 billion people to start with who claim to be the true children of Abraham. But a deeper answer than that 
is that the true children of Abraham in the Bible are the true children of God. So we're going to think about three things together today, three points on your outline. Uh, We're going to think about the man of, of faith, Abraham, the way of the law, and then we'll rise up to this conclusion of the equal family of Jesus. Point one in your outlines, the man of faith. Uh, the Apostle Paul introduces Abraham into his argument in verse 6. So if you can possibly open up a, a Bible, that would be good. Follow along together. Verse 6 says this. Uh, Just as Abraham believed or faithed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, Abraham appears again in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons or the children of Abraham. Verse 8 in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preaches the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Uh, Paul seems to be talking a lot about Abraham and a lot about faith. So you should be asking the question, what's the link between Abraham and and faith. I think the answer is that Abraham is the prototype of the faithful human being, trusting God in situations that required a lot of trust. In that sense, he is the father of faith. Now, there's two different ways that someone can be your father. Um, You can physically descend from someone. I went on YouTube this morning and I, and I typed in uh, what happens if you travel back in time and kill your grandfather. Have you ever typed that into YouTube? 4.7 million people have watched a video about what happens if you travel back in time and kill your grandfather. Who's researching this? Physical descent is the first way that someone can be your father, which means that if your grandfather didn't exist, then... Your father wouldn't exist and you wouldn't exist. But there is a second way that we talk about fathers. Um, Sometimes someone might say something like, Pete Sampras is the father of the power service game in tennis. Does that mean anything to anyone? Okay, that was the 1990s. (laughs) I got a wagging finger from someone. Um, What's a cultural... Khloe Kardashian is the mother of... I don't know anything about Khloe Kardashian, but you've got the physical descent thing, but you've also got the kind of paradigm thing that someone so embodies something that they're the father of whatever it is, TikTok or something like that. Abraham is the father of faith in the sense that he's the paradigm of trusting God. And I think that's why in verse 9 it calls him the man of faith, the paradigm of faith. Um, Abraham, he left his land, he travelled across the Middle East because God told him to. Uh, His wife was very old, but he trusted God to provide a son. Uh, He was prepared then even to sacrifice that son to God, God, though God provided a ram instead. Uh, Abraham trusted God. Now, not always perfectly. And if you know the story of Abraham, you might know some big exceptions. And as such, Abraham is the father or the paradigm uh, for people who trust God, though not always perfectly. 
The account of Abraham follows in the previous chapter of Genesis the account of the... Anyone got this one? What happens in the chapter before the chapter where Abraham's introduced? It's not... The Tower of Babel! Thank you for everyone that got that. I'm going to stick that up on the screen. Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In Genesis 11, this is what the children of men try and do. They try and build a great big tower of their own might to try and get to reach heaven. It's a tower of human accomplishment to get to God, but God doesn't favor that. He scatters them over the earth and he destroys their tower. And then in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 12, as he scatters the people of Babel, so he gathers in this wandering Iraqi migrant. And through Abraham, God shows how he saves people. He says this to Abraham. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Humanity tries to build up to God and the families of man are scattered. But then God reaches down by grace. And in this man of faith, All the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham is the prototype of faith. Now, not always perfectly, just like Christians who trust God, though not always perfectly. Come back with me to Galatians chapter 3 and we'll read verse 9 again. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. But then verse 10 gives the alternative to this way of faith, which is point two in your outlines, the way of law. Verse 10 says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The alternative to the way of faith is relying on works of the law. What does that actually mean? I'd love it it if you could have a little chat around your tables for for maybe just a minute. What would it mean to rely on works of the law? Have a chat and then we'll feed back together.
Alright, anyone want to shout something out for us? What would it mean to rely on works of the law? Legalism, Legalism. yeah, thank you. Very helpful. Uh, anyone else? Always having to be right. Always having to be right, yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's sort of relying on yourself rather than God. Yeah, that's really helpful. Relying on yourself rather than relying on God. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Trying to be perfect. Trying to be perfect, yeah. Yeah. Ah, it's all very, very helpful. Um, the Jewish people had a pretty long list of laws. I, I gather there were 613 laws in the Old Testament. Laws about what to eat, who you ate with temple sacrifice, moral laws, laws about how you paid your servants, marriage laws, tax laws. And a person who relies on works of the law is someone who thinks they can get right with God by their accomplishment, their obedience to that law. It's a transactional approach to God. It's an approach where you think, if I do good stuff, then he has to accept me. I do this, he does that. I hand in my homework He has to give me a gold star. It's that sort of an approach to God. And this isn't just a Jewish attitude. It's a very human approach to religion. Um, We set up some system that allows us to control the gods or God, and we define good in such a way that we think we can be good somehow, and then God has to bless us in response. But the passage in verse 10 says that God looks at those people who are relying on works of the law and instead of a gold star, he says all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. If that's how you want to get right with God, the results will be bad. Because cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you want to get right with God by being a good person, The point is you actually have to be a good person. You can't live in in luxury eating avocado sandwiches while people are are literally starving to death on the other side of the world. That would obviously not be a good person. You know, you couldn't gossip and have a heart full of envy and and slander or you couldn't be mean. You, You would need to actually live a life of righteousness. Who even knows what that would look like? There'd be no envy, there'd be no pride, there'd be no anger, there'd be no lust. God's standards are way higher than we can even imagine. Hence it says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Uh, Australia has famously low standards on what it means to be a good person. Um, I've told you, haven't I, about the good guys in Belconnen. I checked them out as teenagers selling washing machines. Um, we also have a, a saying. We say someone is a goody-goody two-shoes. So, oh, look at that goody-goody two-shoes over there. Have you heard of that? It's a ridiculous Australian saying. I've been overseas, and I can inform you that in other cultures, the standard of righteousness is not plural footwear. Having two shoes does not distinguish you as a moral exemplar. (laughs) If you want to get right with God by being a good person, 
It's about more than being a good person by Australian or by human standards. You really do need to be a good person. Now, verse 12 says that the law is not of faith. Rather, and it quotes Leviticus, it says, the one who does them shall live by them. I think the point here is, if you want to rely on the law, you actually have to do the law. Uh, There was a Jewish outreach event at another uni I went to that, that actually took this seriously. And they advertised a seminar on what is success. And the answer they gave is that success is keeping the 613 Old Testament laws. You have to admire their consistency, although it does sound a little bit optimistic if that's what success looks like. Do not lie. Have you pulled that one off in your life? If that's the standard of success, good luck. It's not enough to just talk about the law. You have to do the law. It's not enough to talk about being a good person or or tweet about it or identify with the right opinions of the day. You actually have to do it to live a righteous life in detail. 613 commands day after day after day. The law is not of faith. It's not about trusting God to save you. If you want to be saved by the law, then you need to do the law. And that's why in verse 11, it says it's evident, it's obvious that no one is justified before God by the law. This is an obvious truth. It's a truth that a six-year-old can figure out. We often do what we shouldn't do, and we often don't do what we should do. That's not a complex truth. You don't need a uni degree to know that. That's obvious. Now, thankfully, verse 13 brings us some good news. So point three in your outline, the family of Jesus. Let's read verse 13 together. Christ, Jesus, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Uh, Any person who relies, not on the law, but on the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, on that tree, is right with God. And every person who relies on Jesus is right with God. Instead of us being uh, cursed for failing to obey God, instead Jesus is cursed on our behalf, As he dies a horrible, cursed death, a death by crucifixion on a tree for us. Verse 14, this is the purpose. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, verses like this always strike me, and I, and I hope they strike you, you too if you read the Bible, because Paul's been talking about salvation by faith and the example of Abraham and law and works and all that sort of stuff, and then suddenly he brings in the issue of the Gentiles. Uh, over and over again in his letters, Paul makes this move. He moves from, from faith to equality, from faith to inclusion, from faith to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. He does it, Ephesians, Romans, Galatians... So my question to you is, why in Paul's mind is the issue of salvation by faith alone so closely tied to the inclusion of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and the issue of racial equality? Have a chat in your groups one last time. Why are these issues connected in Paul's mind? Go for it.
right, give me some thoughts. Why are these issues connected to each other? Yeah, 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 yeah. So the original promise to Abraham was to bless the whole world. Yeah, that's helpful. And he's arguing that the law, that all of the laws that are mentioned in the same form. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So by taking it back to the promise, it's broader than just the law, and it includes all people. Very helpful. Yeah. Can I get another one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very helpful. Yeah. All right. What about this back corner? You don't say much, do you? We said that um, they're linked because uh, they're linked. They're linked because um, having faith is not like conditional on who, like what race you come from. Like anyone can have faith. Yeah. So Paul's saying that racial inequality and this thing that you're trying to do is completely useless because faith. Doesn't like it doesn't care about those barriers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes it much less about you and who you are, and much more about it's just simple trust in Jesus and who He is and what He does. Um, that's that's very helpful. Um, how do you get right with God? Uh, the natural answer that I think many people would have given in Jewish in Jesus's day is that you get right with God by being a good Jew. The more Jewish you are the more right with God you are. Paul rejects that and he says race doesn't make you right with God. Gender doesn't make you more or less right with God. The colour of your, your skin, none, none of these, you know. And Jesus goes to people who are outside the bounds of society and he shows that those people are just as right with God as anyone else. All the little categories and divisions and identities that we love so much as human beings don't make you more or less right with God. The thing that makes you right with God is Jesus. And faith connects you with Jesus. And with the promise to Abraham that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed in Jesus. Equality isn't this self-evident thing. Um, The idea that a German is equal before God isn't self-evident in German history. The idea that smart people are equal before God isn't self-evident in human history. The idea that people born out of wedlock, out of marriage, are equal before God isn't self-evident in human history. In the 18th century, Immanuel Kant in Germany was argued that if a person is born out of marriage, the government should treat them as property. They're not a human being. These things aren't self-evident in our history. The idea that rich people and poor people are equal isn't self-evident even in the American Constitution which didn't let them vote. The idea that disabled people are equal before God isn't self-evident to most human thinkers. And the idea that Jews and Gentiles were equal before God was the most abhorrent thought to a Jewish thinker in the day of Jesus. But the gospel makes this truth evident. Because for every person in every country of every gender, the question is the same, do you trust Jesus to save you? There is no special privilege, only the cross. No Babel, no tower you can build, only the cross and faith. 
Verse 14 again, In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles because it's by faith on equal footing. Fundamentally, this counterattack, this thought that has changed our world that we spoke about at the start, it comes from this. Jesus Christ died for everyone equally. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. By faith you are saved, and that takes away all boasting, all superiority, all of the categories we use to divide and exclude. Human equality isn't a human idea. We're far too judgmental, far too proud. Universal equality is a divine idea. But the Nazis were wrong about lots of things. The foundation point of equality isn't the Apostle Paul. This wasn't invented in the book of Galatians. Verse 14, it's in Christ Jesus that the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles. The moment in human history where the counterattack began, where universal equality was born as an idea worth fighting for, was 33 AD. It's the cross itself. Because if on the cross Jesus died for all people, then before God all people are equal, saved not by our differences, but by our faith. If all people are saved in Jesus, then all people are equal in Jesus. So you're not an Australian, first and foremost. I mean, you are, but not first and foremost. You're not male and female, first and foremost. You are, but not first and foremost. You're not smart or dumb. You're not pretty or handsome. That's not your main identity. First and foremost, these things are trivialities if you know Jesus and his cross. And so after a bit of time talking about the law next week, the argument that Paul is making rises up to verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, one global family in Christ. The fruit of this idea has changed your world, but don't forget where it came from. It came from a promise to Abraham to bless the whole world and his offspring. It came from Christ on a cross because God so loved the whole world. And it came from an apostle to the Gentiles with a gospel of faith for all and salvation for all. And so all people are equal, equally sinners, equally saved, equally part of God's one family. If you trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, may we be people of faith like our father Abraham, who trusted you. May we understand that a person's worth isn't based on gender or race or intelligence or wealth. May we realize that when Christ died for all people, he destroyed pride and insecurity, racism and sexism and any other judgmentalism. Amen. All right, I'm going to take one question. I'm allowed one, so it better be good. One question. Yeah. So. So if it's in Christ, all people are equal. 
That's a great question. I think the Bible gives three or four reasons for the equality of the human race. And the first one is Genesis 1, 28 to 31. Um, all human beings are made in the image of God. So in that sense, based on creation, there is an equality that already exists. But the great thing about Christianity is that that's not the only reason for equality. You then have the cross. You have our understanding of sin. Um, you have our means of salvation by faith. But you would go back to Genesis 1 if you, if you wanted to think about that. Yeah, great question. I'll take another question. Sorry, I said one. That was naughty. I can't, can't take another question. Um, if you've got any questions or comments, can I remind you, you can write on the comments slip. That's really helpful. Write something down. Um, I'm going to hand over to...